Hello. Now, in this episode, we'll be having the last part of my conversation with David Keane from Solve My Claim. In what's been an amazing interview full of so much helpful information and insights into home and contents insurance, insurance claims, and how to ensure you're protected when you need to be. David's been super generous in sharing so much insight, so much help with us, and uh, we've been able to share it all on the podcast, which has been brilliant. So Solve My Claim provides expert support and assistance to anyone struggling with their insurance claims. And I've loved hearing that members of the UA community have actually been getting in touch with Solve My Claim to get the help that they need. And I've also been sharing this incredible information with others who need it as well. And David, he's got more great information to share with us in this episode. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Welcome to season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals, and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire-prone areas, and more generally, designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews, as well as get a copy of the full transcripts, plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. All right, before we jump in, let me just remind you a little bit more about David Keane from Solve My Claim. So David is the director of Solve My Claim and he's been involved in the insurance industry for more than 24 years and he started Solve My Claim in 2014. Solve My Claim exists to provide expert guidance to help you navigate through claims disputes and problems that can be difficult to resolve. They provide an extraordinary service to people who can feel so worn and lonely in the process of making their claims. You know, first they've been through a traumatic experience that's resulted in significant loss or damage to their homes and belongings. And then they've had to face a battle with their insurance company to get the money that they thought they were due to actually help them get back on their feet. I know from personal experience, this can be a harrowing experience and you can feel like all the insurance company is doing is trying to wear you down simply so you'll settle for what they're offering. Solve My Claim does such important work in being in your corner and providing you with the expertise and support that you need to argue your case in the necessary language and parameters required so that you can get what you're owed. Now, in this interview, David is going to help us understand whether you have to justify the value of all your contents in order to claim the full amount of insurance and what's involved in that. He's also going to help us uh, learn more about the insurance terminology definitions that he sees really trip people up. And he's also got thoughts on whether we'll be seeing dramatic increases in insurance premiums because of all the recent claims or whether he thinks there'll be an inability to even secure insurance in certain locations. So, Let's hear more from David. 
You're, say you've insured your contents for 100 grand, uh, you suffer total loss, they all go. Can you just safely expect that you'll get a check from your insurance company for $100,000 or do you still have to go through the whole exercise of demonstrating that you owned $100,000 worth of stuff? Uh, look, by rights, you should be able to expect 100000 um, The insurance company will still want to assess the claim and they'll only pay you out 100000 if you can show them that you've lost $100,000 worth of goods. Uh, this is an issue that I take up with insurance companies all the time because I think it's inherently unfair if you've just had a bushfire come through and you've lost everything and the insurance company says, okay, well, give us a list of what you lost. Where do you start? Like really, if you if you now and and everybody listening to this podcast, have a think about if someone told you gave you a spreadsheet and said list everything you own, where where on earth do you start? And and even if you took two weeks to do that, you're going to miss so many things that you just would never think about. And so, if you then come up with a list of sixty five thousand, they'll give you sixty five thousand. Uh, or if you come up with a list where your prices are deemed to be unrealistic, then they'll say, well, prove that you had that. And and that that is not difficult in some types of loss. So if there's a flood, you can say to the assessor, okay, everything's still here. You, you see it for yourself. But if there's a fire or if things have been stolen, how do you prove what you had? Uh, and, and this, I think, would be the biggest single issue that we face or, or that that causes claims to go into dispute and that issue is this that people both on the side of the consumer and the side of the insurance company can't prove what this property looked like before the event or what or what contents were there before the event it's the single biggest factor because the onus of proof is back on you as the as the claimant to prove what you lost or what you had now, just as a as a bit of a plug and as an aside, we're we're looking at um, providing a solution for that in the coming months, where we're actually uh, developing an app program where people can actually have everything into what we're going to call the Solve My Claim Vault, uh, and you file in the vault, and just on your phone you can take photo and video of all of your stuff, of your property, of your building. If you have say maintenance done to your roof or something, you get photos of it. You can photograph the receipt, you know, all that stuff where we can lock it away in the one place for you and it's protected for any time you need to make a claim. So we are, we're working on a solution to that because it is such a big problem. Um, awesome. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about that when it's ready to go later this year. Yeah, we'll definitely let people know, yeah. Absolutely, because it really, and, and you don't need an app like that. You can do it yourself. And from, I think from the, some of the information you sent me, it sounds like you're one of the only people I've ever spoken to in 25 years who actually has everything listed on Google <laughs> or, or on your computer somewhere, all of your stuff. Uh, I've, I've, I've watched and managed claims, untold thousands of claims over 25 years now, and I've never once had someone say to me, right, here's a list of everything I own. Um, and so that tells you that most of us don't do the groundwork. Um, the the only sure way of being protected is to do this process before the claim. Um, but again, like reading a policy, 90-something percent of us are never going to do that. Uh, and so what I say to people is there's a very simple way to start, and that is just take your camera, your, your phone camera, we all have it with us all the time, and just in every room of your house, take four photos. So stand against one wall and take a perspective photo the other way down your room, and then do that with all four walls. You don't have to take photos of individual items, but you just get to see every room. So for about 24 photos in your house or however many rooms you've got, you can get a snapshot of everything you owned. Now, that's not as good as a list, but when you have that fire and your insurance company says, right, give us a list of everything you own, you've got a starting point. You can look at the photo, look at that room and say, oh, yeah, that's right. I had those 10 ornaments there and I had this and I had that. It gives you just something. And you can do that for three minutes of your time. So if nothing else, 
just get a, a handful of photos um, for contents of, of just different rooms. You don't have to list every item of clothing, but open your wardrobe and take a photo. Because then from that photo, you'll say, oh, yeah, that's right. I had a $600 suit or I had a $300 jacket. Or Do, do you know what I'm saying? Um, so you can very simply give yourself a massive head start because I can tell you now that anyone listening to this podcast who's been through the bushfires has probably already had the traumatic experience of being told, we want a list of everything that you lost. Um, I would also say to people that insurance companies will say, oh, find the, the best price you possibly can. Something will have a mar- Most things will have a market value that ranges. You might be able to get it from, say, $500 to $800 for argument's sake. Um, if you start with the $500, you can pretty much rest assured the insurance company will want to try and bring the price down from there. I say to people, start with a higher market value. I'm not, not saying that you um, that, that you declare a value that's not realistic. You know, you're not going to make a false statement to the insurance company. But if, if you want to um, obtain a replacement item from the local shop and that's 800, but they can get it uh, from from IKEA for 500, well, that's okay. But are they going to cover the cost to bring that item to your place, or are they expecting you to drive halfway around the country to to their choice of suppliers? So. Um, Start with a realistic value of each item that that you would be quite happy to walk away with for that item. Um, it's up to the insurance company to assess the value of things. So you're actually within your rights to put any value you like, as long as that's legitimate. Um, and it's up to them then to determine whether that's fair and reasonable. And sometimes they'll make you do all the groundwork for them. They'll say, oh, you go online and you get quotes and you do this and you go and spend two weeks of your life uh, because your policy won't cover you for your time. That's seen as a consequential loss. So you've put in two weeks of your paid time rather than them paying a staff member to do what they're paid to do. Uh, and, and even then, in many cases, they're just going to say, oh, okay, well, thanks for your values. We've got our own supplier. We can get it for half the price. And and so the, these can cause significant frustrations. Um, but, yeah, there's they're some of the, I guess, some of the tips that can uh, put you in a better position any time that you actually have a, a contents claim, whether it's a small one or a large one. Yeah, that's exactly what happened with our storm damage is we were asked to put together a list of everything that had been damaged and so we're going through it's like bedding and you know there was stuff that when the floods when the when the heavy rains came through a couple of days after and the place flooded there was stuff that you know rugs and things that that got drenched and yeah you're sitting there having to look online for comparable items and put a price against them and it did it just took forever and so yeah it was um you know I think that the only reason that I've got better at it is and I mean, it was funny when not funny but when the fires did, were nearby and you know this is what you're referring to is before you know but I was in Sydney and I was watching the fires near Mayap and saying that the fires were about 17 kilometers from our place and I was due to fly home the next day and I was getting more and more stressed and more and more worked up and and uh, it wasn't until I got home and I raced around with my phone and did that thing of of taking photographs and logging everything on Google Keep that I started to feel my anxiety subside a little. And it was it was weird because we were still obviously under the threat of needing to evacuate, but at least I knew I had some documentation that would prove that we owned what we owned. Do they expect you to be able to produce receipts and those kinds of things? Like how stringent yeah. are some insurers <laughs> going to get about this? It depends entirely on the person who's managing your claim. Uh, and, and I've got one that I'm dealing with right now, actually, from Townsville again, where uh, it wasn't actually Townsville floods, though. It was just a, a, a separate uh, water through the property type thing. Uh, this lady has a 50 grand sum insured. She's given them a list of 38,000 worth of contents, and, and they're wanting to go back and uh, look at every single one, get quotes on every single one. It's just ridiculous. So um, most policies will say, 
that you have to or you've got to provide proof of ownership or proof of loss might use slightly different terms but essentially you've got to prove what you're declaring as your loss now how that's interpreted is very very subjective so in most cases if you've had a fire they're not going to expect receipts because you can say well the receipts were burned Sometimes they do. Sometimes I've heard people say, I'll oh, go back to, if you bought it four years ago, you can go back to the store and they should have a record of the purchase. Um, if you're dealing with a theft, that's probably where proof of loss becomes a bigger issue because if, you, if you're if you saying someone's come and stolen three necklaces and you know two TVs and my laptop and whatever and you can't prove that you bought any of it, you should be able to have some sort of documentary evidence when the only things that are stolen are a number of items through something like a theft. Um, and, and in those cases, they may ask you for receipts or they may ask you to go back to JB Hi-Fi where you bought the laptop and or, you know, you. sometimes when I used to do loss adjusting and assessing, I'd say to people, okay, if, you, if you're saying you're a laptop, do you have the manual? Do you have the mouse and the mouse pad? Do you have the case? Do you have, show me something to show me that there was a laptop here. Um, you know, do you have? Did you ever put in the the warranty receipt? So there's there's ways of of proving that. Yeah, that you're not the just buying a laptop for your insurance excess, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it, see, and I've and I've worked both both of these uh, both sides of this, and uh, we used to joke when when I did motor vehicle insurance for a long time. We used to joke that it was amazing how everybody who had a stolen car had four hundred dollars sunnies in the car, <laughs> uh, even if. Even if they'd gone overseas for a month, and I'd say to them, "So you didn't take your four hundred dollars sunnies overseas?" Oh no, they were in the car. Do, do you know what I mean? So, um, there are legitimate reasons that they ask you for proof, because unfortunately, there are some dodgy people out there too. The insurance companies aren't the only dodgy ones in this whole transaction, unfortunately. Um, and so, so it's reasonable for for them to expect that you provide some sort of evidence, but that really depends on the type of claim. Um, again, and I don't want to keep coming back to this plug, but again, the best way is to have photographic evidence beforehand. If you can show a photo, um, and, and one thing that people forget about too, because if let's say you've just had a house fire, for argument's sake, if you're on Facebook, you've probably got 300 photos on your Facebook wall. Now, they're not going to be photos of your contents, but have you ever taken photos of a kid's party inside the house that happens to show some of those rooms? Or have you taken a photo of you wearing that necklace? Or do you know what I mean? Like, think outside the box. Uh, what I've found in many cases is if you can provide what is seen as a reasonable level of proof for, for for items that we would expect that you would have proof for, then they probably won't question you on the others. Um, if, if, however, you've got nothing, and another uh, case in point, one of my Cyclone Debbie claims, uh, which was up in the Whit Sundays, a young guy had uh, all of the – he put in a claim for contents. He was a tenant, contents only. He had um, contents claim for a fridge and a freezer and a barbecue and all these major items, and and he had gone and thrown them away the Saturday after the cyclone because the council was saying, oh, free rubbish runs, put everything out, we'll take it away. He threw everything away, didn't take any photos of the damaged items, um, didn't have any evidence. And so he came to me because the insurance company put an investigator on the claim. He was having investigation interviews and everything. They were treating him like a fraud. Um, but I understood why it went that way in that case because a reasonable person would at least take photos before they threw everything or they'd at least ring the insurance company and say, hey, what do I do? And so in that case, we, we actually managed to get the claim settled for him, but I think it was largely settled because we got involved and they didn't want us to take it all the way to AFCA. Um, but that was one of those ones that really could have gone either way because he didn't even have what I would consider to be a reasonable level of evidence. Um, so it is a case-by-case. Case. Uh, ideally, you would have receipts or proof of purchase of some type for at least some of your major items. Um, 
if you've got some, then they may ask you less questions about the rest. But by rights, they can ask you for some sort of proof of everything. Gotcha. No, that's it's really good information. And I think it's that thing of just having some systems and processes. I saw that a woman on your Facebook page had actually said that every October she just schedules that she does that kind of process of photographing what she owns, which like that's just, yeah, that something like that, getting that system into your life. I can hear a lot of people going, oh, well, I'm too busy for that. But I think that, um, yeah, when I read that, I thought actually that's pretty cool. Like if maybe every, you know, when you're doing that big annual spring clean that you use that opportunity to, you know, photo update your contents list and just have it somewhere. And we've got so much opportunity to um, access things in the cloud and all that kind of stuff that we don't have to be worried about losing that data, you know. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say is I used to say to people before the cloud became a big thing, um, take a copy, but don't just have a copy at home. So have a copy at home and either have a copy at work if you can have a computer at work with a file on it or get, ask, put it on a USB, ask your mum to mine a copy or someone, a family member that lives somewhere else. So you've got two copies of it. The cloud largely deals with that, but I wouldn't even just rely on the cloud. I'd have a hard copy and cloud copy. So with what we're trying to set up with the with the vault, for example, is it's a cloud-based thing. Um, but part part of that issue of people thinking oh, I'm too busy to do this is we're actually going to have prompts. So every uh, maybe there's a there's a news thing about cyclone up in North Queensland. So all of our North Queensland clients will get an email saying, "Hey, do you have photos of your house? Your contents are they all up to date? Do it now." Because we we have a lot of focus on be cyclone ready, be fire ready in the sense of clear your property, know what you're going to take with you, and that's all absolutely important. Have an exit plan. But also from an insurance point of view, uh, we can be just as prepared for an insurance point of view. Have you got your photos? Have you got everything together? You know, do you do you know what your policy is? Do you have a copy of your policy or any of that sort of thing um, leading up to storm season? The, the number of times I've had people who, uh, by the time they talk to us in the aftermath of a claim, they're dealing with the biggest regret of their life, and that is that they weren't prepared for this particular disaster. Yeah, no, that's such great advice, David. Could you perhaps take us through some of the definitions that really trip people up, that you see catch people up out of not really understanding? I know that um, flooding was a really big one when the Brisbane floods did go through. People didn't really understand what flood meant and how that might apply in an insurance situation. What do you see happen for people in these yeah, look, flood Flood is now a big one for commercial and strata policies and some rural because they're not necessarily covered. Most mum and dad residential policies now will automatically cover flood. And so in Townsville, for example, last year's flood, most of the policies were covered. We're dealing with some of the stratas that weren't covered and we're fighting some of those claims. Um, so flood is less of an issue for many of us, but it's first of all understanding that things like that are covered. I mentioned earlier, you, you've at least got to read through, even if you're not going to go through the whole 80 or 100 pages of your policy, at least know what areas that you, or what events you're covered for because you may be surprised what you're not covered for. Um, a flood is one that will always be listed separately to storm. Now, in, in general terms, and, and again, I need to clarify that policy wordings can vary, and you do need to go back to your own policy wording. But in, in a general sense, when when you have a storm event and you've got rainwater, stormwater, groundwater, whatever you want to call it, that is flowing towards the natural water courses, so those might be rivers, they might be um, drainage systems or whatever it might be, something that is considered a natural water course. When the stormwater is flowing across the ground to those low points, it's considered stormwater. Um, any any water that comes directly from the sky through the roof in through your windows in, in a cyclone event you might have louvered windows in North Queensland and, and the rain's coming in sideways all of that is stormwater 
But even at a groundwater level, if that water is running towards the river that's down the road from you, that's stormwater. Once the river fills up and starts backing up and those water levels start rising, that's called flood. Um, so the overflow of a natural water course um, and, and where there's uh, there, there are disputes going on over terminology, again, semantics, right now in Townsville, is whether some of the storm drains are actual watercourses or whether they are um, channeling stormwater into the watercourse being the river. And so if one of those drains actually backs up because the river's full, is that flood or is it storm? And, and we're, we're having some of those fights at AFCA now, and we're winning some of them too. Um, but I don't know that we're going to win all of them because there, it is uh, an area that's fraught with danger and there's, there are so many uh, different viewpoints and semantics involved. Um, so you, you're, you're, um, in short events are big. Um, another one that often trips people up is retaining walls. Retaining walls, for the most part, are not covered by your policy, um, particularly when it comes to storm, flood, um, you know, a, a number of areas of insurance. The reason for that um, generally is that many retaining walls are not built properly engineered. They're just built up. They, they don't really have the sufficient strength to retain what is behind them. Um, and, and even if they do, when the, the dirt or whatever it is behind them is saturated, if there's not proper drainage, those retaining walls will uh, give way or they will start to, to deteriorate in time. So most policies will not cover retaining walls. We've won some cases with retaining walls because there's a counter perspective where if the retaining wall does fall and cause damage to your home, the insurance company does have the obligation to make the property safe. We had a case up in Cyclone Debbie where the retaining wall was retaining a hill behind the house, an eight-metre hill. Um, now, it gave way. It was a landslide. They said it's not covered, but it was up against the house and it shifted the house. And we successfully got a quarter of a million dollars for the client um, because it was going to cost half a million to re-level re, um, uh, the hill because the insurance company was responsible to make the property safe. And if they couldn't uh, impose temporary make-safe measures, they were responsible for a permanent make-safe. But generally, that, that's the exception. Generally, your, your retaining wall will not be covered in a storm um, or any sort of weather event. Uh, what are some other ones? Um, oh, many people assume that, let's say, in a storm event, the tree from next door falls on your house. You can't claim on next door's insurance. It's not. It's not nothing to do with the next door owner. Um, the fact that the tree was on their property is absolutely irrelevant. And, and this issue comes up time after time after time. The only time that you can claim against someone else is if they are negligent. So if they're chopping their tree down to hit your house, absolutely, go for your life. They're, they're at fault. Uh, or if they, if their tree is riddled with termites, they were advised about it. They have letters either from you or from council. There's a track record showing that you've tried to get them to take action and they've refused. That's where you go into the area of negligence. Outside those cases, you really can't claim against them. A lot of people choose not to have insurance because they think, well, you know, if anything like that, I'll just claim against the other party. Uh, and and they're, they're stunned sometimes that they won't be covered. And so the insurance, let's say the tree next door has fallen on your house. The insurance company for the next door, they will likely go and they will cut the tree at the fence line and they will take away the part of the tree that's on the other side of the property. And they'll say, that tree that's sitting on your house, that's up to you. And um, people will, will so often think, that's so unfair. But it's not really because next door didn't do anything. The, the cause was the storm, not next door. Um, and the example I give people so they can understand that a bit better is if someone steals your car and then crashes it, should the person that your car crashed into be able to sue you for that? Uh, and the answer is no, because the, it's the thief that's at fault, the one who stole your car. The fact that it's your car is irrelevant. 
Um, and so your policy would not pay for the damage to the other car in that case. So that, that's something that trips a lot of people up because they assume that they're going to be covered for something like that by the other insurance policy. They're, they're some of the major trip-up points. Um, I think also the issue I mentioned before about carpets, curtains and blinds. A lot of people choose not to insure their contents and then they wonder, well, hang on, my carpets aren't covered because they're actually under contents. There's a lot of trip-up points for landlord's policies. If you've got a tenant in your property as to what is covered, what's not covered, and you really need to read that carefully in your policy, what type of damage from your tenant is covered? Because in many cases, if their three-year-old runs around with a texture and drills on your walls, that's not covered because it's not deemed to be malicious. Uh, if the 21-year-old is on ice and punches through the wall, it might be covered. Um, actually, an issue on that that has is becoming a much bigger issue is the situation where tenanted properties are allegedly used as drug houses, you know, to manufacture ice or various things. I've had a number of cases that have come our way now where someone will buy a house or come into a house and they'll they'll get a, a professional cleaner who can do one of those methamphetamine tests and they find that there's meth all through the wall linings and, and so the house has to have a 20 or 30 grand clean and many policies aren't covering that. Because again, even though there was illegal activity that took place, it wasn't malicious damage that was occurring. There's one of those where I'm arguing at the moment before AFCA that it should be considered malicious damage, and I don't know where how that will go, but I, it's becoming a bigger issue. Um, I've seen cases where drug labs, they punch holes in walls to put their hydroponic stuff through, and it's, yeah, it, it's, not, um, it's not the exception anymore. Wow, that's amazing! Yeah, like it's it's a it's a real minefield, isn't it? I mean, it's that thing of like knowing what you're actually insuring for. Is it a property that you're um, that you're renting out? Is it a property you're going to live in? Is it you know that whole strata thing of what is actually contents, what is building, and you actually living in a strata insured property, knowing exactly what's in your strata policy so that you don't run into issues and you understand too at a body corporate level, what are they responsible for maintaining? So again, it's that whole, the whole message is be informed so that you can be educated and be contributing to that decision-making and feel active um, and protected in that process. Very true. Um, and, and I think it, it's that, that whole thing, like this, you raise the issue of strata. Strata is such a minefield. Because you and you have inherently, I think it's a conflict of interest. If you've got a body corporate who is a separate entity to any individual, and people sometimes don't even understand this, as an individual, you don't own your unit in Australia. You, as a collective, own the collective property. And so, if you, as part of a body corporate, are expected then to make decisions for the good of the collective, any unit owner is going to make decisions in their own interests. And I've got a case right now that's being argued at two levels in Townsville. Uh, there's four units, two downstairs, two upstairs. Um, the downstairs units were flooded. Uh, flood is not covered, but we're, we're fighting that there was stormwater inundation first. So we may or may not win on the base on that $120,000 repair bill for the two downstairs units. The two upstairs unit owners have said, no, we're not interested. It's nothing to do with us. Our properties weren't damaged. Uh, and so the two downstairs unit owners and the two upstairs, there's four on the on the body corporate. So it's two versus two. And so the strata manager then came in and sided with the upstairs unit owners saying, well, no, they shouldn't have to pay for anything. Whereas legally, it may well be that all four of them as the body corporate are responsible for all the damage. And so the, the strata managers wanting us to hopefully win the claim at AFCA first because then there's no real issue. But it raises a massive issue about, you know, how, how do you, if you go into a strata property, do, will you even have control over this? If three out of four say we want a new roof and you don't, 
do you have the right to say no? There's so many issues there. Yeah, no, that's just... Oh, David, this is just um, so helpful for people. Now, before we wrap up, I just wanted to touch on, there's obviously been a lot of talk on the ground about building codes and insurance premiums and what it might mean for moving forward, what we might see from insurers in terms of raising premiums, removing stuff from cover, um, and what we might need to navigate in the future. These incidences are being seen to be more and more regular. Um, how, what are you hearing on the ground and how are you sort of, what are your thoughts on this generally? Sure. Well, my first thought, being the the cynic that I am and having seen 25 years of insurance company actions, is that I think it's inherently unfair for an insurance company to initially charge a premium that's higher because your house is older on the basis that they have to upgrade for compliance and then whinge about having to upgrade for compliance when you make a claim. Uh, they get extra premium from your older homes. Uh, and if the insurance council are always bleating about Oh, if, if we pay out all these claims, then the premium's going to go up. My counter-argument to that is if your business model is based on not paying out all the claims, then it's a flawed business model. Uh, now, it may be that insurance premiums should be higher in order for everybody to get what they're entitled to. Uh, that's, a, that's a totally different question. And, and that's, the, I guess, the dichotomy that we deal with, that I, as an advocate, my only interest is the client who's before me getting them what they're entitled to. I actually don't care about what that does to premiums down the track because that's not my area of, of um, responsibility. Um, the, other, the second thing is insurance companies will always make a profit. And so if they make a loss this year, then the premiums next year will ensure they make a profit. So, and, and again, that's not wrong. That's just reality of business. So it stands to reason that when we have more and more events, that premiums will go up. Certainly in the short term, the, the other side to the whole discussion is the reason that building codes increase all the time, whether it's bushfire codes, whether it's cyclone codes, whatnot, is that the idea is that next time there's a bushfire, this house won't burn down because it's actually built to a different standard and with different spacing around it. So yes, in the short term, premiums may well spike because these properties have all got to be brought to bushfire code now. But the industry is talking about uh, um, pre prevention and, and uh, uh, preventive maintenance or preventative upgrades rather than dealing with everything after claims. So surely this whole idea of upgrading building codes is part of that process. So if we have cyclone-rated you know, Cat 3 or Cat 4 homes built up in Cairns and it has a cyclone next month, um, there's still going to be damage. But many of those newer homes, you would think, would have much less damage. And if that's the case then the insurance industry is going to pay out less. And I'd like to think that if they increase the premiums now, that they're going to decrease it at that time. I'm probably not going to hold my breath, but I'd like to think that that would be the case. Um, what I have found, and this has been the one consistent factor in insurance over 25 years in my experience, has been no matter what happens, no matter what claims experience, no matter how many events, premiums will go up. And again, that's part of cost of living. It's, it's part of... Uh, ensuring that your property is uh, you, that you mitigate the risk as far as you can uh, and shopping around for the insurance companies that are being more realistic sometimes when you have a significant premium increase it's not a it's not a um, fair increase in premium what it is is an insurance company saying i don't want to insure your area and rather than them actually making a decision to say, we're not going to insure Townsville anymore for example um, they'll just price it accordingly so that you go elsewhere uh, now, there's a business practice in that. Builders can sometimes do that too. If they don't want the job, they come in at 50 grand higher than they really think it will cost because they figure, well, if I get the job and I get the extra 50 grand, I can live with it, you know? Um, so I think there's those 
market forces that can take place. If you have a significant increase, absolutely shop around uh, because it's it's likely that your insurer doesn't want your policy either uh, and someone else does. Do you think that that's more likely to happen than it being, you know, that if there is particular areas that insurers don't want to insure because they see them as too high risk, that they just make it cost prohibitive for customers rather than put blankets across areas and say that's not going to be an area we insure any longer? Yeah, I think that's already been happening for years. Um, the the average, oh, I mean, it's well, there's probably no average, but it, it, typically in Sydney, where I talk to people, it, which is the biggest market, they're paying maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand for their home insurance each year. Uh, typically in North Queensland, uh, for the same type of home, the same values, the same sums insured, the same policy, many of my clients are paying five to ten thousand for the same policy. So it's actually been happening for a long time, uh, and. There's actually an inquiry, an ACCC inquiry that's been going on for a year or two now over insurance costs in Northern Australia because Northern Australia are bearing a significantly higher brunt of those costs already than Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide. And, and there's look, these are really complex issues as to what the answers are. There, there are so many views and many of them have some legitimacy. Should we all be paying uh, to to compensate or to, to counter for the risks in North Queensland? Uh, the, the government tried to do this or put this in after the Brisbane floods and suddenly every policy had to have flood coverage and some premiums went up five times and then people are saying, well, hang on a minute, I live on a hill, I'm not paying five times a premium for your flood cover. So, you know, there's there's the there's the competing views on that, both of which have legitimacy. And um, But yeah, I think in answer to your question, it's been happening for years. It's really becoming a bigger issue now because the questions are starting to be raised in new areas, such as Sydney, South Coast, Canberra, Melbourne, after the massive hailstorms, um, you know, maybe Adelaide, Adelaide Hills after the bushfires. They haven't really had those questions of, of those areas before because it's been really relegated to North Queensland and Northern Australia. Well, David, I can't thank you enough for your time and your generosity. You have shared so much with us and I think given us so much knowledge and expertise. It's very clear how passionate you are about this uh, industry and about levelling the playing field. As you know, you've said to me, this is a, this is about social justice. And I, um, yeah, I think that everybody's incredibly appreciative for how much effort and energy you are putting into helping people, not just the people who actually work with Solve My Claim, but I know how active you are generally in giving uh, people access to really good knowledge and information. So they're prepared, they're making the right purchasing decisions when it comes to their insurance and then they're making the right decisions when it comes to their claims and, you know, getting support and, and help for their fights as well when they need to go to dispute. So, David, thank you so much. It's just been such a pleasure meeting and talking with you. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for the opportunity. It was, it was great to have a chat and hopefully uh, something of value can be, uh, be put in there for, for the many listeners. Thank you. And that, my friend, wraps up my epic conversation with David Keane from Solve My Claim. All in all, we've shared five episodes with David. So if you haven't had the chance to listen to them all, be sure to head back to earlier in the season and you'll hear the first three parts there. Look, insurance can be one of those topics that feels a bit dry, a bit difficult. And I actually have wondered whether five episodes would be a bit much. But frankly, David just had such incredibly helpful knowledge to share and he was so generous with his information and his his expertise. I just wanted all of this out there. This, you know, it's one of those things. Once you've been through an insurance claim and if you've had any difficulties at all, you'll know how important this knowledge is to have up front 
to help you to be better armed. And fortunately, you've agreed with me with David's episodes being downloaded over 10,000 times so far. So I am so glad that this information has been able to help so many and arm them with the knowledge that they need so that they can get better outcomes for their insurance policies and from their insurance claims. Now, make sure you head to the resources. I've got links there for you to get in touch with David and solve my claim. And there's also the free content inventory schedule that David's made available for you. So you can check out the resources for those links. And remember to head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild. We've got all that we're sharing in the Rebuild and Build Better series there. And, you know, really recommend that you bookmark it so that you can keep checking back as it grows on an online hub for anyone who's rebuilding after bushfires or wanting to build better and more resilient homes. And please share this podcast with others that you know it will help. I would really love this season just to reach as many people as it can and uh, and benefit those who really need this help. Now, in mid-September, I actually attended the Australian Bushfire Building Conference. It was held in the Blue Mountains, but they opened it up to virtual attendance thanks to COVID. (laughs) But it was actually, you know, it's one of the silver linings of COVID is that we've been able to get access to so many more things because people are going virtual with things. And so I was able to attend this this virtually with I think 280 other attendees were virtually attending this conference. It was fantastic. It was two days of incredible speakers. There were so many insights shared, you know, case studies, uh, research, such great information. So I actually wanted to share it here on the podcast and, uh, and bring this information to you so that you have it. Now, one standout thing to share from the conference before I sign off this episode was this. Bushfires aren't only impacting homes in bushfire-prone areas. One of the uh, speakers actually shared stats from the New South Wales fires that showed that of the 2,400 homes that were lost, around 250 of them were not in bushfire-prone areas at all. So 10% of the homes that were lost just in New South Wales from the 2019-2020 Black Summer fires, 10% of them were not in bushfire-prone areas. Now, The stats also state that around 90% of homes were lost due to ember attacks. And so embers can travel for up to 40 kilometres ahead of the fire front and they can also be present uh, behind the bushfire as well. So this is the thing. Building resilient homes isn't just for bushfire prone areas. This is information that everyone needs so they can make sure their home can handle and be protected during these kinds of times. Now, In our next episode, I'm going to be diving into some more of the learnings that were highlighted from this conference, Um, and not only learnings from the most recent bushfires, but from earlier bushfire events as well. There's still lots of research happening from the recent fires, but there was also some great stuff shared from uh, earlier bushfire events. And it was a, you know, it was a heavy couple of days. Lots of people who were speaking had actually been impacted by bushfires. They'd been defending their own homes. Um, you know, these were professionals that live in bushfire prone areas and uh, were sharing a lot of the footage and images from that time. And and so you could see how raw and real it was for so many that were there. But it was also incredibly exciting to see what's possible and what we're learning and and what we're seeing. So the changes, you know, that have been made to the bushfire building codes that were made, they were accelerated after the 2009 Black Saturday fires they were seriously tested during these recent fires and you know they're collecting information on homes that were built to the current bushfire codes that were subjected to bushfire conditions 
to be able to give us really good intel on how effective those bushfire codes are and what works and what doesn't. So, you know, so much work has been done. It's still being done, but um, ultimately it's going to enable us to have a really good assessment on what is the best approach and what really works for bushfire resilience and bushfire protection in these kinds of areas. So I'm really looking forward to sharing more with you here on the podcast and we're going to have that information coming up. As always, as always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time.